The name of the song is It's Dark. It's from the album of the same name from the band The Imperial Royale. So you can find them at theimperialroyales.bandcamp.com to check them out when you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. The song appears on this episode, number 188, with their permission. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook, and this is our second installment in our double feature week with Scott Morris, my partner, or at least one of my partners over at 1951 Down Place, the Hammer Films podcast that we co-produce monthly with Casey Criswell. He's also one of the two people in the mouse-eared hats over at Disney Indiana. When Scott's not producing the bi-weekly Disney Indiana with his wife Tracy or doing 1951 Down Place with me and Casey... He's watching classic science fiction movies from Monster Kid Radio. And this time around, we are talking about the movie The Mole People from 1956, starring John Agar and a few other people. And we're going to talk about that here in this episode. So I mentioned this is a double feature week with Scott. Basically, what Scott and I did is we came up with a theme that we wanted to explore together. And this week's theme was movies we haven't seen in a long time. The Mole People is one that I hadn't seen in years, and I'm pretty familiar with the story, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. I was excited to go back and revisit the movie to see if it's something that I still enjoyed. I remembered liking it the first time I saw it many, many, many moons ago, and I wanted to go back to The Mole People with my friend Scott. So we're going to get to that. You know what? Why don't we just go ahead and dive in? You know, actually, before we dive into that, point of correction, a point of clarification. So speaking of Scott, he actually had a correction to make regarding the last episode that I did. I was talking about the Monster Kid Radio crash coming up with the movie Horrors of Spider Island. Well, it actually has already happened now at this point, and I think people knew what I meant when I accidentally said that was happening in May. It actually happened March 25th, so it's already happened by the time this episode goes out. Of course, I'm recording before the crash. I am planning to bring my recorder with me, and I'm going to try to record a little bit at the show and create an episode of Monster Kid Radio down the line out of that. But if you had your heart set on watching Horrors of Spider Island, well, in May, well, I'm sure you can. It's on DVD, but... The crash already happened. So thanks for pointing that out, Rondo Award-nominated podcaster Scott. Why don't we get to him and the mole people and John Agar right after this. While the beach set twists to the big beat sound of the Delairs, swinging out with six rocking hits, while the cycle gangs burn up the road and strong-arm their way into the party with fists flying, while teenagers prepare for a secluded slumber party, terror strikes from the bottom of the sea, an invasion of ghoulish atomic beasts who live off human blood. living dead. They're zombies. Again and again, the fiendish monsters struck like nothing that ever stalked this earth. An entire city in the throes of panic at the mercy of demons from the dead. Hi, this is Joel Hodson, the creator of Mystery Science Theater 3000. You're listening to Monster Kid Radio. Why don't you? B.C. To reach this lost civilization, science had followed a trail through burning desert sands, through the roaring avalanches of Mount Kuitara. 
finally deep into the bowels of the earth. Not even history had recorded the existence of this unknown empire of darkness. There is no world beyond ours. If I ever get out of here, into my world. The world of light and flowers? Would you come with me? Never before had outsiders beheld such sights. The sacred ritual of the sun death. The blazing sacrificial chambers. The court of the all-powerful high priest of Ishtar. You will die in the fire of Ishtar. The blood-lusting mole people storming from their subterranean caverns. theme of the double feature movies that we had seen a long time ago and just haven't revisited and for my pick five years after when worlds collide universal put out a sci-fi adventure movie has a little bit of lost world feeling to it the mole people from universal starring my man john agar and the beaver's dad (laughs) and batman's butler batman's butler yes Yes, and the pilot from the boat and creature from the Black Lagoon. So, uh, yeah, it's got a, a good cast here, man. I really, en- <laughs> it, it, it's awesome. Uh, so, The Mole People is directed by Virgil W. Vogel, who, from what I understand, hadn't done a lot of film direction before this film. This may have even been his first feature. He does a lot of television. He does a lot of TV. I believe he was an editor, wasn't he? Yeah, either way, this was the first time he really had done a film. And I didn't see any first-time director issues here. Everything seemed pretty solid in terms of direction. Now, this is a movie that I had seen, uh, I'd say probably early 90s was the first time I encountered this movie. Because as I've mentioned my story with horror movies and monster movies, that sort of thing, when I finally started working at a blockbuster video, I was ordering Universal Classics left and right. You know, My paycheck would go straight to that because I got an employee discount. And I ended up buying the mole people on VHS and I watched it and I liked it, but I never really went back to watch it again. And I don't know if it's because a few years ago I picked up uh, the Warren publishing comic book from 1960. Hmm, when did that come out? Now the 1960s Warren put it out as a Fumetti style comic book, which is just basically a photo comic. They took pictures from the movie put it in the comic as comic panels, and then added word bubbles and sound effects. I have one of those for the horror of Party Beach. Mm-hmm. So I have that. And I, I've read the story there a couple of times. I know the story, but it just wasn't something that I'd gone back to revisit because when I went John Agar, I go to things like Revenge of the Creature, right? And when I went Hugh Beaumont, I go to Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> you don't go to My Three Sons? I'm glad we had that conversation <laughs> off mic. <laughs> Yes, I mistakenly thought he was from My Three Sons. Both shows have infectious theme songs. You're welcome. (laughs) But yeah, it just wasn't something I had gone back to. Of course, I know the mole people design. I mean, that's an iconic looking monster from Universal's 50s era. And I've got a couple of little figurines of them as well. I think I've got some big head figures from several years ago, and that's in the set. They're cool looking monsters. I think they're pretty neat. Now, they're done by Bud Westmore, supposedly. That's the credit in the film. Although I've read some things online that maybe Millicent Patrick had something to do with it. Oh, and speaking of Westmore, actually, to make another connection to When Worlds Collide, Wally Westmore was involved in the makeup on that film. I don't know if there's a relation, but there's a Westmore connection. Anyway, uh, so The Mole People was one that I got to revisit, and that's what I brought to the table. And this is one that you'd never seen? Well, I mistakenly thought that this wasn't on Mystery Science Theater 3000, but it actually was. Yeah, it was during the time when they were on the Sci-Fi Channel yes, or something. Season like that. 8, the third episode. Actually, this is one movie that was in two episodes because it, it a clip from this film is actually used in the 68 film The Wild World of Batwoman. That film was what? also <laughs> How did you find that out? Doing some research in my Mystery Science Theater 3000 information. 
See, kids, MST3K will teach you stuff. <laughs> the mole people show up in a quick scene for there, and uh, Mike and the bots make a joke about uh, Reese's peanut butter cups because you got my film in that film. And, of course, Mike then stops him saying, that's enough of that film, referring to um, the mole people. But having said all that, I didn't remember this film. For some reason, that film didn't make an impression on me. So watching it this time, it, it was like watching it for the first time because I don't remember watching it on MST3K, even though I know I watched it because I've seen all the episodes. Right. It was shorter than I remember. It's only like 71 minutes or something like that. And I almost feel like the little bit at the beginning was tacked on to make it run a feature length. I want to talk about that little bit at the beginning. <laughs> okay. So this is the 50s. This is Universal Sci-Fi. And they put out some great films in the 50s at Universal. And the science fiction era, I mean, Universal's known for the monsters, but their 50s sci-fi is also fantastic. But there was always something in these movies that kind of made them feel a little, I don't want to say off because it's not like I dislike it, but there's always a little bit of a science lesson in them. Jack Arnold was notorious for this. There's the bit in Creature from the Black Lagoon where they're talking about the lungfish who can walk on land. You know, there's all these little bits here and there. Well, this isn't a Jack Arnold production, but boy, it sure could have been. Because this opening with Dr. Frank Baxter talking about all these hidden world theories. Which, wouldn't you get like a professor of geology or a professor of astronomy? Not an English professor. Why is it an English professor? <laughs> um, <laughs> and he was actually an English professor at the University of Southern California. So maybe that's why he was in L.A.? <laughs> I guess. He was available Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> that's what his background was, was English professor? Yeah. He, if you look up Frank Baxter, that's who that is. It says that he was an English professor at the University of Southern California. Interesting. That beginning was rough. It wasn't fantastic. Now, we don't have to deal with Dr. Frank Baxter through the rest of the film. He's just at the beginning talking about these different theories of well, theories that have been proved wrong, basically. <laughs> you know, our place in the world, what's in the earth, you know, that sort of thing. And then we get to the opening credits of this movie, which I loved. I love the opening credits. Oh, the opening credits were cool. Oh, it is one of the coolest opening credits from this era. Coming out of that steam vent. Oh, it's great. I don't know, and I'd have to go back and double check, but I don't think there were a lot of movies from this time period where the credits, the titles, were actually interacting with what was on screen. You know what I mean? Yeah. These were kind of coming out of, like you said, the steam vent, so it's like they're coming out from the earth where the mole people live. Really interesting, really cool. So I like the opening credits, and of course, John Agar's in it, and he's... Just charismatic. Yeah, how many John Agar films have you seen? I've seen Tarantula. I've seen uh, The Revenge of the Creature. That's the only two that I can think of off the top of my head. Man, you're missing out. You need more John Agar. <laughs> you saw the King Kong from the 70s. He's in that. Is that the one where he climbs up the World Trade Center? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know he was in that. Yeah, he's a, a city official in that. You know, John Agar is a man. I mean, even if we didn't keep talking about the Dead Elvi song that, that commemorates him, I've been a fan of John Agar for a long time. I mean, the guy is just charismatic. He carries these science fiction movies, and he's good in other types of movies as well. Uh, one of my favorite movies with him is actually a little low-budget thing called Calvary Command. And... He's just fantastic in that as well. Yeah, just go watch more John Agar, ladies and gentlemen. You need you need more vitamin John Agar in your in your diet. <laughs> what I've seen of him, you're right. He does carry the film. He actually almost dominates this film. Well, sure. He and his magic flashlight. He's got a magic flashlight, the, the fire stick or whatever they call it. And then we mentioned Beaver's dad, Hugh Beaumont's in it. He's another doctor. So John Agar is Dr. Bentley, Roger Bentley. He's an archaeologist, as is Hugh Beaumont. is Dr. Judd Bellman. And there are a few other people here. And where are they right now? They're in what part of the world? In Asia somewhere, aren't they? Yes, they're in Asia. They're uh, doing some sort of dig. I'm not sure exactly what they're looking for there at the beginning. They're just digging. Yeah. Hanging out, doing what archaeologists do. <laughs> and they, there's a whole team of them. 
there's a guide to help him through the mountains. There's a few other doctors, including Dr. – excuse me, he's a professor, Professor Lafarge, played by Nestor Pieva, who was also in Creature and Revenge of the Creature. One of the only, if not the only, non-suited actor to appear in two Creature from the Black Lagoon films. Yeah, he's in it as well, and I love him. I've always loved him as Lucas in the Creature film. I, Lucas, will do it. I love Lucas. And every time I see him turn up in another movie, it's like, that's my man. I like Nestor a lot. So he's in it, and he's this professor type. A few other archaeologists who become moot points later. I don't even remember their name. (laughs) (laughs) But as they're digging, they find some ancient Sumerian stone tablet. Is it Sumerian? I believe it is Sumerian. Which John Agar can read, because he's John Agar. (laughs) Yeah, I love the scene where he's he's starting to translate, but at first he's acting like he's not going to do it. He's like, ah, that's beneath me. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, right? <laughs> but he does translate, and they determine that they are near a lost civilization. And so this isn't just a, a sci-fi film. This film really does turn into a lost civilization, a lost world type of movie. I can say, wasn't it basically there was more than one arc to tie this back into the first movie we talked about. Yeah. They talk about like the flood story and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, this other civilization that splintered off and Scott and I love lost civilization movies like she, (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) you had to go there. (laughs) She would have been so much better with John Agar in it. Oh, John Agar and Peter Cushing. That's a dream cast for me. <laughs> and Christopher Lee. Oh, my God. That would be perfect. Oh. <laughs> you get John Agar in Revenge of She, and then I'll watch it. <laughs> so they decide they're going to scale this tall mountain because there was an earthquake that knocked a bunch of stuff loose, right? And broke their um, tablet. Well, they got to go get another one. They're going to go up the mountain to get it. It's a treacherous trek. And even though I said earlier my first time I saw the mole people was actually on VHS when I was working at Blockbuster, my first encounter with the mole people was a track called Treacherous Trek from a CD of a collection of music from these films. I can't remember the name of the album, but it had music from this. It had music from Tarantula and the Creature films. And I had that CD, and I loved it. So I actually have heard this music before I saw the film. But they go up this mountain, and it's tough, especially on old Professor Lafarge. He's got some sort of condition, doesn't he? I'm guessing some sort of heart condition or some sort of something in his chest because he gets short of breath really easily. He really does. But John Hancock's like, come on, pal, you can do it. It's only three days up. (laughs) I expected Agar to just pick him up and carry him up the mountain. (laughs) He really could have, right? (laughs) (laughs) hop on board buddy let's go (laughs) i didn't do all those films with john wayne without learning a little something about being a man let's do this (laughs) well they get to the top of the mountain and they do find like a temple and some statuary i mean this is this lost civilization and as archaeologists they're thrilled but their archaeologists cut more from the Indiana Jones cloth than, I don't know, real-world archaeologists <laughs> cloth. Because they're going to go on an adventure and just barrel on in. They're not going to go lay out a grid and start digging a half centimeter at a time. Yeah, they, they find the, what is it, the statue of Ishtar? Yes. Which then, of course, reminded me of that bad film. <laughs> <laughs> Man. There's nothing Ishtar about this. No. <laughs> no. But yeah, they find the the statue head of Ishtar, but yeah, you're right. They don't start like, okay, we need to cordon off this area to start searching for the rest of the statue. And they know they're just marching all over everywhere. (laughs) There's got to be more here. Let's dig around while they find, well, they don't find the unnamed archaeologist who I'm sure has a name in the movie. I just can't remember his name off the top of my head. It might've been Dr. Stewart. If I'm looking at the cast list from the IMDb correctly, but he falls in a hole. Yeah, the ground gives way below him. Now, the stone tablets that they find, there's a lot of, you should not be here kind of language in this. You know, don't disturb Ashtar. Oh, we're going to ruin everything. So there's a lot of earthquakes and such like similar events that happen. This whole part of the film reminded me of a mummy film. It really does have that vibe, which might be a reason why I liked it. Because I love me a mummy movie. 
So uh, let's call him Dr. Stewart. I assume that's who it was. He falls in a hole, and they're going to go try to get him. They can't even see the bottom, so there's, like, no way the doctor survived this. Right. And they have a guide who goes in as well with them. He doesn't survive. (laughs) (laughs) Not to spoil too much of the film, but Don Agar, Hugh Beaumont, and Mr. Pava are the ones that we follow the most around. And even by the time the movie ends, they're not all there. Yeah, they get down to the bottom. There's a cave-in, and they're stuck. And Professor Lavarge, man, he is not good in pressure situations. (laughs) Now, granted, he's not in the best of health. And if he's got a heart condition or a breathing situation and there's thin air and he didn't really want to do this part of of the trip anyway. But he has a habit of just running off screaming. (laughs) Well, when you see the uh, skeletons that they run across, I don't blame him. That's true. That's true. They do find some skeletons right away. And they're of the mole people, aren't they? Yeah, because you can tell by their hands. You know, outside of seeing the skeletons, by the time the mole people actually appear on screen, there's no him and Han around. They're not trying to be subtle about it. It's just like, boom, in your face, here's a mole people. Here's a mole people. That's that's good. A mole person. Here's a mole person. <laughs> <laughs> well, up until this point in the film, like I said before, I had not seen this, or if I had, I hadn't remembered it too well. I was thinking that it was just mole people. I thought they were going down there. They're going to run across this race of mole people. They're going to have to deal with them, maybe somehow try to communicate with them to find their way out. But I didn't remember or know. There's no indication that there's another society down here. I had that same issue the first time I saw the movie, because when you see the old VHS box, you just see the mole people on the cover. Yeah, they're very prominent on the poster. So you don't see anything else. You just assume that's what it's going to be about, which you know, maybe had a time machine, Morlock kind of thing vibe to it for me. Oh, definitely. But no, you do run into this other civilization that worship Ishtar, led by Batman's butler and, <laughs> and the king, Alan Napier. Yeah, he's the high priest of the society. And to his credit, the first time I saw this movie, I didn't realize it was Alfred. Well, all of these people that are living down there, well, save one, are basically albino. They've been living outside the sun's effects, and so they basically have no pigment. And if anybody is born with any kind of pigment, they're the marked ones. I like that, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a marked one. A Dodd, played by Cynthia Patrick. Which, unfortunately, I kept hearing as Adele. Yeah, that's true. I did hear that quite a bit, too. It's like she's rolling in the deep or something. I don't know. <laughs> she was a contract player for Universal at the time. Did a lot of television as well. Eventually, small small parts. She didn't really have a huge career. Not a heck of a lot you know, under her name on the IMDb. I don't know why. I thought she was fine. I thought she did good for what she was supposed to do. Well, she leads to the biggest problem I have in this film. But that's uh, not till the very end. Oh, well... Okay. I don't think I'm going to come away from this movie the same way I came away from When Worlds Collide. There are some issues I have with this film. I still love it. But there are some real issues that I have with this movie. We'll get to them. Unless you want to do them now. No, we can get to them. But I thought she was really held her own with John Agar. I thought she was okay. Yeah, I I would imagine it was kind of hard to, you know, live up to the Agar. You know, (laughs) playing Spock's guitar. Basically. (laughs) even though this was before star trek but (laughs) this is true this is true so when they do encounter this other civilization there there are two casts or groups there's the mole people and then there's these albino type and the albino type are the upper class and the mole people are used as basically slave labor and the albino types when they first encounter dr bentley and company They don't believe that they're from the outside world. This is a threat to their power structure. This is a threat to their way of thinking, their religion. But they can't even support them. Yeah. If if, if they even liked them and wanted to stay, their support structure wouldn't allow it. So they immediately want to kill them. They must be killed. They're from the outside. They're lying. They're not from the outer world. So, of course, they take off. And I have a feeling that this civilization, this society, isn't very good at policing. (laughs) Because Dr. Bentley and company are able to hide from them for quite some time. They love to see how things work for the mole people anyway. And enough for Lafarge to go running off screaming quite a few times. They do send a whole bunch of guys after them into the cave. 
Yeah. Which they're able to defeat with a flashlight. Which I thought was cool. And I had forgotten about that when I had watched that. I actually really liked that as well. That was really cool. There's an immediate problem that's going to happen eventually that I wish that they had addressed. <laughs> I wished uh, Beaver's dad had pulled John Agar aside and said, you know, we're going to run out of batteries soon, right? <laughs> you shouldn't be flashing that thing around. But you have a society that is in, in the dark all the time. Their eyes are not going to be used to a bright light. This flashlight, basically, they all go running away, hiding, covering their eyes and everything, cowering and running away. Well, it's this fire stick, this fire from the gods that convinces the king of the people that they're gods. They're not just people from the outside world. They're actually holy people. And Johnny Agar and company are okay to play along with it. They were sent to see how they live and how they... (laughs) Whatever, John. (laughs) So they, they get a nice big plate of mushrooms. Yeah. So we do get a little crash course on how this society functions, what they eat. A little bit. It's not really delved into too much, but it's there. Yeah, yeah. about the only food that grows down there is mushrooms because they don't need sunlight. And then we see that the race down there is using the mole people as slaves to grow the food mm-hmm. with whips. And they basically just whip the tar out of them it's it's indiana jones on the temple of doom man it's pretty rough on the mole people and i actually felt sorry for him yeah i did too i guess it's a trademark of universal monstrous period i mean you feel sorry for frankenstein's monster you feel sorry for talbot from the wolfman so here i am feeling sorry for the mole people who can burrow through the ground which i thought was was a cool trait but i always wonder you know i'm watching this scene where they're getting whipped why don't they just burrow into the ground and hide and all that yeah yeah well and eventually all that burrowing, I would imagine, would impact the structure, you know, the, the stability of the structure there. And <laughs> But either way, I mean, I think it's cool. It's a cool design. I mean, the humps in the back seem a little off form for me. But, I mean, it's still a cool design, and I did like it. I liked the design of their hands. Oh, their hands are great, and I love their mouths. Good and creepy. Mm-hmm. But the hands look like, I mean, they look functional. It wasn't, let's just put some alien hands on them. They actually thought or at least somebody thought, or it was a happy accident. This is what these hands would have to look like in order to be able to burrow through the ground. And the first time you see that is when you see the skeletons. Yeah. You don't, you haven't seen one of them alive yet, and their fingers are like three or four times longer than ours would be. Yes. Which makes perfect sense for the design. Yep. Well, even though they've been accepted as gods, John Agar and company are still a threat to the power structure here, specifically the high priest, Ellen New, played by Alan Napier. Alfred from the Batman TV series (laughs) with some wicked chin whiskers. Yeah, he basically sees these people as direct threats to him and the whole religious structure that he's put together. Probably high priestess before him, you know, over generations have set up this religion. And these two people are completely against what he's been preaching. I would say that he's probably the one that's got the real power here, too. The king seemed pretty ineffective. He seemed like a slight person, somebody who was pretty gullible. To me, it was pretty clear that the priests run the show. The people may look up to the king as a figurehead, but the priest controls the king. And eventually, they do convince the king that there's nothing special here. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. They find... Um, well, they find a body. Lef- yeah, they find Lafarge. Yeah. They've been telling them that they're from the heavens, but if they're from the heavens, why do they have a mortal corpse? Yes, because they had told them that Lafarge went back to heaven. Additionally, Elenia wants his hands on that fire stick. Of course he does. Of course he does. It's a weapon. (laughs) It's a tool. Yeah, he can better control the mole people. Well, it doesn't do him much good when he finally gets his hands on it. Probably because I don't know if he knows how to work it, but there's also (laughs) the battery issue. For as short as the movie is, it's got a lot going on it moves pretty quickly there's the discovery of the new world there's the discovery of the new society there's the mole people stuff there's all this other story happening even though the movie's moving along at a really quick pace it could have been a lot longer to really fit more fill it out give us more motivation behind i don't know what ellen is doing or more with the king i feel unfortunately for this film there's there's two parts of the film that are in there for no other reason to than to pad the film. The beginning? The beginning and the climbing. The climbing takes a lot longer than it should. It really does take quite some time. And I know that we're supposed to get that it's treacherous. It's a treacherous trek after all. (laughs) We're supposed to get that. And I know that we're supposed to see that Lafarge is not 
as strong constitution-wise as Bentley and company, but it does take quite a while. And it felt like it was padding. It's not like they went out and shot a bunch of this. This felt like stock footage or second unit footage. Now, having said that, there's another scene that I really like is I, I like the sacrifice scene. Yes. I thought that was really well put together. That was really cool. Because they basically, I think they can only, now I'm getting my numbers mixed up. Because I about said they can only uh, support 44 people, but that's from <laughs> the other film. Was it 66? It was like 60-something or other. Yeah. That's the, the amount of food that they get. They can only support that many people. They call the king calls it a holy number because they only have that much. Yeah. And if they get more than that, they basically sacrifice people. And there, there's a scene where they show that, where they actually put them into the eye of Vishnu. Yep. Which is really just a cave leading up to the outside world, isn't it? Yeah. The first time I saw that was shown and that you see the three sacrifices going in there and there's a bright light. I looked at Tracy and I said, that's their way out. Yeah. That, that was very telegraphed, that that's the way that uh, Dr. Bentley and uh, Dr. Bellman are going to get out. Yeah, I agree. But it's basically a long shaft back up to the surface where the sunlight comes in. And these people that go in without any skin pigment are basically roasted. The makeup of the, when they pulled the bodies back out. Pretty gruesome. Pretty gruesome. <laughs> For that time period? I was really surprised by that. So I really like that they had this pageantry basically for the sacrifice. It wasn't they just threw them in there. And I really liked the way that whole thing was done and when they pulled the bodies out. It was very well done. But this whole time, you know, Dr. Bentley, they actually are starting to get the favor of the mole people because they won't attack the mole people at one point with their fire stick. And then they also free the mole people because there's three of them that are being chained to the wall and being whipped to death. So the mole people are actually now on Dr. Bentley's side. Which was also something I didn't expect the first time I saw this. That the mole people would actually end up kind of being de facto heroes. Yeah, because they revolt. They help take out the race of albinos. And they give Bentley and company a chance to get away. Now, can we talk about the ending? I know, spoiler, whatever, but... This is where the movie turns for me. Because we get Dr. Bentley, we mm -hmm. get Dr. Bellman, and we get Adad all escaping. They climb up that shaft back up to the surface and they're back at the ruins that they found at the top of the mountain at the beginning before they fell through the hole. Mm -hmm. And I'm expecting that <laughs> they're going to walk against a nice matte painting. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, several times in the movie, Adad has said that she wants to go with them because she's, she's a marked, she's got pigment in her skin Dr. Bentley is one that said, I'll take you with me to basically their heaven and, and show you these cities and show you everything. And they're obviously falling in love. And Dr. Bellman's on board with it. He's like, you know, <laughs> you know, Beeve, when a man and a woman <laughs> fall in love with each other, <laughs> pulls out the pipe. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like they're going to go live happily ever after and Adad's going to get to join our civilization. But unfortunately, when they climb out to the area there and they start to walk away. They, they get her some clothes to put on because she's wearing a short little white skirt. So they get her dressed for, you know, the top of a mountain and then an earthquake hits. Ishtar's not having any of this. No. And for some unexplained reason, she runs back towards the temple yeah. where a couple of the columns fall and crush her. Now they talked about this over on the B movie cast. And this is also on the IMDb. What is being purported or reported is that Universal did not shoot that ending to begin with. But there was some concern about mixed race coupling here. Which makes no sense to me. I agree because it's clear that she's a human, a person, a white person. I mean, there's nothing here to... A blonde, I and mean, even though it's black and white, you can tell she's probably blonde, blue-eyed. Yes, so I don't know if that's true. It's, what, it's all over the internet, so it must be. But it's so unfortunate because it does feel like an odd ending. It doesn't fit. No, it does not fit. It, it actually really hurts the movie, in my opinion. It's like you've just 
escaped from these people. You've, you've made a way, climbed up this hill. You're, you're all done. And then, I mean, even if they had just climbed up and they were standing there and then it happened, but she runs back towards those columns. She freaks out. Yeah. Could I could buy it if it was like a complete accident, but the fact that she ran back into harm's way is what doesn't make any sense to me. It didn't make sense to me either. It's, it's unfortunate again. It just doesn't seem to fit. But I was enjoying the film. I enjoyed John Agar. I thought he was great. We've mentioned the, the makeup of the mole people. I like the sets. Oh, the production design's great. Yeah. Even though the whole time I'm trying to figure out, okay, how much of this mountain has been hollowed out and how is the mountain supporting itself? <laughs> <laughs> there is that. But I had to just turn off that logic part of my brain and just enjoy the film. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's an enjoyable film. It really is. Yeah. There are some issues with it, but... I'm glad that I got to finally watch it. And I now kind of want to go back and watch the MST3K version again. Mm. Now that I've watched it straight. I think I'm good for a while with this one. I don't know if I'm going to wait another, oh, good God, I'm old 20 plus years <laughs> to watch it again. But I think I'm good. And it is a story that I, I'm going to remember, especially being a little bit more aware of the people involved now and, and having a deeper appreciation for these kinds of movies than I did when I first saw it. Like I said, I've got the comic book I can go back to. It's funny. Both of the movies that we watched today, we both had problems with the endings of both films. Yeah. But I think the ending of the mole people hurts it more than the ending of when worlds collide. Yeah, I think so too. I think the ending in that one is a little bit more detrimental to the overall film. I'm sure I'll go back and watch worlds collide. I won't wait. It would be even more than 20 years <laughs> to, to watch it. But other than the MST3K version, just because I want to see that now, I doubt I'll watch the straight version of The Mole People for a while. I mean, it's a good movie. And I'm sure there are people out there who will listen their favorite film. And it is John Agar doing his John Agar-ness best. But yeah, it's if I want John Agar, I'll, I'll, like I said, I'll go to Revenge of the Creature or something like that. I'll watch Tarantula. I really liked him in that. There you go. I just got that on Blue. I need to sit down and watch the Blu-ray. So it's that German release that I was telling you about. But it runs a little short for me. It's got awesome monster design. But I think I will go back to When Worlds Collide first if I go back to either one of them. You know, because I'm going to run out of movies to watch sometime soon, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, that's me too. There's tons of movies I haven't seen at all yet that I want to get to. So. <laughs> yeah. I don't think a week goes by that something doesn't show up in my mailbox. <laughs> so terrible. But I'm glad you uh, you brought the mole people. I'm glad I got to see it. Definitely. And this one's also easy to see right now. It's on DVD. And I don't know if it's available for streaming, but it is available on DVD. I believe Universal has a part of their uh, MOD collection, the Manufacturer on Demand set. It's also released in a box set at one point. And if you uh, still get DVDs from Netflix, they do have it that way. That's where you got yours, right? That's where I got mine, yeah. yes. Yeah, for fourteen ninety nine or 98 excuse me, uh, <laughs> the Universal Vault series has it available right now as a standalone. No special features or anything like that. And, you know, that's too bad that there aren't more special features for a lot of these movies. I feel like Universal's kind of missing out on a market there. You hear that, Universal? You can double dip me with special features on this stuff because I know they're listening. Only because there's a Rondo Award-nominated podcast on the show. <laughs> <laughs> like Scott here. That's right. Well, this was fun, man. Thank you for doing this. Now, if listeners are not tired of listening to your voice, they can hear you every other week at Disney, Indiana, DisneyIndiana.com. What's coming up next over on Disney, Indiana. Uh, we're going to continue our canine confidential series that we're running for the entire year of 2015, where we're looking at, the Disney dog pound, different uh, dogs in Disney universe and diving into their history and talking about them. That'll be what's up on our next episode. Right on. So that'll be coming out in your new episodes come out every other Sunday, right? Correct. Okay. Which if this episode is going out the week of the 20, 22nd, is that? Yeah, that's today that we're, yeah. that's today. So it's this upcoming week. Our next episode will be coming out on the 29th, the week from today when we're recording. So people should check that out. Also at the end of the month is when the new episode of 1951 down place comes out, which is the podcast that Scott and I do together with Casey Criswell. And I uh, even forgot what movie we talked about. Vampire, Vampire Circus. Vampire Circus. That's right. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs>
I, that's not how it goes. That wasn't in that movie. It was it. There was no calliopes in it. There, there should have been. That'd have been awesome. <laughs> the vampire calliope. So that'll be coming out over at 1951downplace.com. And I'm sure we'll have Scott on the show again in the future this year more than once. Just going to find some more movies to talk about, man. Or I have to be nominated for another Rondo. <laughs> How long is it going to be before you let me uh, let me live that one down? <laughs> I was like, even if I am nominated, you won't mention me. <laughs> oh, God. like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler. Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom. So tune in to B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. Now, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Devin Arts present the most spectacular woman in the world, she, the immortal goddess whose passion defies time, she, whose cruelty defies description, she, who waits for one man to drown the fires of longing within her for 20 centuries and across the desert of lost souls over the mountains of the moon to the venal city of kuma at last he came to bathe with her in the flame of eternal life she who must be obeyed she who must be feared she condemning thousands to tortures beyond your wildest imagination frolicking in pleasures beyond your strangest dreams Overpowering adventure in color. Big thanks to Scott for appearing on this episode of Monster Security, as well as the last episode as well. This was a lot of fun. I love podcasting with Scott. He's somebody that I've been podcasting with for years, so to have him on Monster Kid Radio, it's always a treat. For me, I hope you guys and gals dug it 
as well. Now, there is a musical stinger that I played throughout that conversation with Scott. Every once in a while, I drop this in. That's from the band The Dead Elvi. Think Elvis, but without the S at the end. It's Elvi, because there's more than one of them. TheDeadElvi.com is where you can find them. The song is called John Agar Rules. It's from the album Graveland. And they've given me permission to play their music here on the podcast. And, you know, I can't help but think about that song whenever I think about John Agar. So, big thanks to The Dead Elvi. Big thanks to you, Monster Kids, for listening to the podcast. Now, if you have anything that you want to share with us here on the show, comments on anything that Scott and I talked about or anything in the previous 187 episodes, go over to monsterkidradio.net, click on the contact button, and you're going to find our contact information. Or just start taking notes now. Monsterkidradio at gmail.com is our email address. Our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-M. K-R. Of course, you can always find me on Facebook as well. I've got a personal account, but there's a Facebook group for Monster Kid Radio. You can find the link to that over there on our website as well, as well as our link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show. Keep an eye on that because on Saturday, March 28th, that Patreon page is changing. We're streamlining it a little bit, getting that cleaned up, making it a little bit easier for me to manage because I definitely want to thank everybody who supported the show that way as well. We also have a live 365 radio station. It's internet radio. It's ad driven unless you pay for a premium membership at live 365. Otherwise you have to put up with a few commercials here and there, but between the rare commercials, you're going to hear music, sounds, trailers from classic monster movies, the kind of stuff that I listen to all day. You can now listen to all day. And of course there's a link to every band that's appeared here on the show under the songs button over on monsterkidradio.net. So get over there or get to our Facebook group to keep the Monster Kid Radio vibe going for you until next week when the next episodes drop on March 31st and Thursday, April 2nd. As of right now, I've got an interview planned with author Dwight Kemper. Now, he is also involved in the upcoming Tales of Dracula movie. He's written three really cool novels that I think Monster Kids everywhere would dig. And I'm looking forward to chatting with him and sharing that interview with everybody next week on Monster Kid Radio. If all goes according to plan and the calendar doesn't change, that's what we're going to get next week. Either way, I hope to have you back here at monsterkidradio.net for that or anything else we've got coming up here in the future. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, any other podcast catcher out there. And if you're in the local area, maybe we can meet up at the next Monster Kid Radio crash at the Joy Cinema. Go over to thejoycinema.com and you'll find out that the next weird Wednesday screening is the movie Island of the Doomed. It's from 1967. It's also known as Man Eater of Hydra and then something else that I can't pronounce in Italian. I'm going to be introducing the movie at the Joy Cinema. It's being brought to the Joy in association with Dorado Films, your home for European gold from the silver screen. That's going to be a lot of fun. So hopefully we can see you there next week for Weird Wednesday. Again, that's April 1st. Showtime, around 9 p.m. In the meantime, Monster Kid Radio is the registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song It's Dark. It's on the album It's Dark, and it belongs to the band The Imperial Royales. You can find them at theimperialroyales.bandcamp.com to check them out and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Thanks for listening.